0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments, designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at serialbox.com. S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm really excited to be here today with Jamie Brenner. Jamie is the author of many books, including The Husband Hour, The Wedding Sisters, The Forever Summer, which was a bestseller, and her most recent novel, Drawing Home. A graduate of George Washington University in D.C., Jamie worked at HarperCollins, Barnes & Noble, and
1: Vogue, and currently lives in New York City. So welcome to Jamie. Thank you for having me, Zibi. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a fan. Aww. And I have to say, I can't believe you've been doing this for just a year because it seems like the amount of people you've spoken to and it's how much you've done for books, it seems like this has always been around. So Aww, thank, you. thank you. And we need more of this. There's so a lot you. of writers and not enough places to really talk about books. Uh. I
0: love it. I'm, as you know, I'm like, I do this for fun. I mean, I I really do. I love it. So it's all like a dream come true for me to be able to like spend my day sitting here talking to authors and reading books. And I mean, it's like so fun. So. Anyway, <laughs> I'm glad other people are benefiting from my selfish joy. <laughs> yes.
1: That's, yes.
0: So Drawing Home, I read the whole thing nonstop on an airplane. Like, could not put it down, plowed through, loved. It was so good and, like, so visual. Like, I just felt like it was better than all the other people on the plane reading, watching movies. Do you know what I mean? I was, like, so in it. So tell listeners a little bit about what Drawing Home is about and how you came up with the idea for the book.
1: Okay, so Drawing Home is the story of a woman who works at the front desk of the American Hotel, which is an iconic hotel in the center of Sag Harbor, which is part of the Hamptons. And she's worked there for her whole life, you know, really trying to put things together for herself and her daughter. And at the start of the summer, one of the hotel's most famous bar patrons suddenly drops dead. And this is not a spoiler because it literally happens on, like, page two. And to the young mother, Emma, my protagonist, surprise, she finds out he has left his beautiful house on the water filled with priceless artwork to her teenage daughter, Penny. While she's trying to figure out how and why this happened the artist's longtime patron from Manhattan sweeps into town to try to wrest this inheritance away from Emma and her daughter. And that's the beginning of the book. It just gets better from there. You wrote throughout the book so beautifully about
0: motherhood, and I know you have two daughters yourself. Here's one quote that I really liked. In the early days of motherhood, Emma had wanted nothing more than sleep. Now all she wanted was more time with her daughter. Then you say how much Emma misses the times when Penny would tuck her warm little body against hers while Emma, fully awake, counted the hours until she had to leave for work. If her own mother had been around, she might have warned Emma that the hardest stage of being a working parent wasn't when your child was small, the tricky part was when a kid was in middle school and high school. Someone had to keep track of Penny's friends, her moods, the overall temperature of her life. Emma should be that person, and lately she felt she simply wasn't doing a good job. Yeah. Talk to me about about that and sort of the ever-shifting demands of motherhood.
1: Well, what no one told me, maybe some people get forewarned, but you think in the beginning, oh my gosh, this is the hardest part, being up all night and the feedings and the trying to decipher the needs, and you think it's going to get easier— And what I, and while that is a very, very difficult time, it never gets easier because the challenges just change. And what I'm finding now, I feel like people are like, like gonna you know they're like so upset to hear that it never gets easier it gets easier (laughs) in the sense that you as a mother have more freedom to go out and do your thing and your child's at school and you can communicate like you're not wondering like oh are you hungry are you tired are you sick what changes is the ability to fix their problems Mm. and My daughters are now 18 and 15. And what I really miss with a 15-year-old was just being able to make her feel better by going to get ice cream or going to Mary Arnold for a toy or something. And what I'm hearing from even older mothers is this doesn't change even when your kids have kids of their own. And what I'm learning is... It never gets easier, but the one thing you can do to make it easier on yourself as a mother is to understand that you cannot fix everything, and it's not your job to fix everything. And trying harder and harder to control, which a lot of type A moms who, you know, these are moms who have careers and kids in this. The harder you work does not necessarily result in, in better outcome. So part of motherhood, just like when you're pregnant and you need to let let go of your body because it's out of control, part of motherhood is that constant learning to let go a little bit because you cannot fix everything. That was probably the best advice. I
0: <laughs> I feel like you are like literally talking directly to me. And <laughs> it, it, I feel like the knee-jerk reaction to try to like protect the kids and yes. fix everything is is really overpowering. But, you know, I would never expect my mother to fix my problems at this stage. <laughs>
1: I mean I hope not. And <laughs> yet she still wants to, I'm yeah. sure. I mean, thanks, Mom. I know you're <laughs> listening. <laughs> yeah. So that is Part of what I explore in Drawing Home is both the ever-changing demands of motherhood, and yet somehow it never does change, not from the minute you first hold your baby. You also talk a lot about art and artistic talent in
0: this book, which I found very interesting. It's not always in fiction to hear about people creating this amazing work and everything. And you say, and B, one of the characters in your book knew she had an eye for artistic talent. And I like when you said, how did she know? The same way Henry, who was the famous artist— Knew that the black and blue and the configuration of his painting would work. It was what she was hardwired to do. So, do you think that we're all born with skills like this, especially in the visual arena, like art, art appreciation, you know, just being able to, you
1: know, maybe even in the literary world? I do believe that we're all born hardwired with certain things. And I'm fascinated by people who have a visual sense because I have zero. And people who know how like to decorate a room, or even how to put an outfit together. I feel like that is as innate for them as it is for me to put words down on paper. And it's something, I I don't think, maybe you can study it, but people with a true eye, You're born with it, and while I was researching this book, I watched a documentary on and read books about Peggy Guggenheim, and I was really fascinated with her instincts for what was not. I want to say valuable art because it's not about the monetary value, but what was meaningful mm. art, and she just knew and she trusted her instincts. And I do believe that's something you're born with, like an like an ear for music, right? And I always say I wish I had a visual sense because I don't. And writing visual stuff in my books is the hardest thing. Like I have to look at rooms, research what's really in that room, and then transfer that to the page. I cannot, I have no visual vocabulary for beauty and architecture and art and clothing. Well, maybe you're like overcompensating because I literally
0: that's one of the things that I was so struck by was how visual your book was and how I felt like I was watching a movie. Like you have it, I can see the scenes so well. So whatever you've sort of, this this self-taught ability is, I don't know, I think it's pretty good. Well, anyway. (laughs) Henry, the artist at one point says, you know, no one, he's talking to Penny about Penny, the daughter at one point is thinking of doing a graphic novel. And when she says, you know, she doesn't know how. Henry says, no one ever knows how to do anything until they do it. So I was wondering if you've ever had a mentor as great as Henry who, like, convinced you to try. Is that how you started writing this way? Is Was anyone a mentor to you in this way for what you're doing?
1: I never had a mentor like Henry. I never had a mentor, period, which, you know, I would often wished I did have one. But that bit about no one ever knows how to do something until I do it is something I learned After a very long time of working in book publishing, actually. So I've wanted to be a writer since I was little. But to me, writers were these magical people who could just like put, they just wrote books. It Mm -hmm. just happened. And I'm like, I can't do that, you know. So I'm like, oh, I'll work in book publishing. At least I'll be around writers. The more I worked with writers, the more I realized a lot of them don't know what they're doing Mm -hmm. any more than I did. (laughs) You know, I saw manuscripts come in late. I saw manuscripts come in messy and not working. And I saw editors fix things. And I saw how much, you know, an art department can augment the story inside the book. And That realization that no one really knows is what gave me the freedom to try. But no one ever told me that. And I grew up in a suburb of Philadelphia, and it wasn't really like an artistic environment versus my kids who grew up in New York who see the day-to-day life of a lot of artistic people. So I had to learn after many years that no one is perfect. No one knows how. Like, the important thing is just putting the effort in and, and trying. That's great advice, too.
0: This is a very helpful morning here. <laughs> so Penny starts taking some little white pills, as you call them, mm-hmm. at a party with friends and finds that they end up really helping her. And they help her get through her boring summer job at this historical society. And she's basically self-medicating OCD, which yeah. you write about in really beautifully as well. Have you seen this happening, sort of the self-medicating trend, if you will, with like friends of your kids or just here in the city or or just around the country. You know, Penny was able to stop, but a lot of kids obviously can't really stop. So
1: anyway, can you? Okay, I mean, I could literally do two hours on this topic, but we're going to keep it brief. Let's do two minutes on this topic. i (laughs) very opinionated. Okay. Okay, so when I was growing up, my parents said, don't do drugs, don't smoke pot, it's bad for you. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't. Mm -hmm. Like it really wasn't that complicated for me. I don't want to do something that's bad for me. I don't want to disappoint my parents. So I'm like, I'll have the same talk with my 12-year-old. Like, this should go really well. I give her the spiel, and then she says to me, okay, I understand it's bad for me, but honestly, I would take anything that makes me feel better, that can stop this endless cycle of obsessing in my mind. So I'm sorry, but I don't know if I can promise you that I'm never going to do drugs. And I was like, whoa. You know, it was really mind-blowing to me that there are kids who are not doing drugs to party because it's fun, but because they literally are trying to, like you said, self-medicate. And this changed my approach to how I talk about drugs with her. And, of course, I brought in, you know, psychiatrists and professionals to help me deal with this. Did you know that she was having those types of thoughts before this conversation? I knew she had OCD, but I was— There's a lot of very good therapy for OCD, cognitive behavioral therapy. And then going further, there's dialectical behavior therapy. And this does help. I didn't realize that just like we have the impulse to go for the glass of wine after a stressful day, of course these kids have the same impulse. So the conversation, I think, sometimes has to change in the way we talk about drugs and smoking and if there's a real problem that they're trying to fix like let's try to help them with you know in a controlled way that said i'm really upset about this whole jeweling thing okay these, these jewels are marketed to these kids it's very hard to detect like when we were growing up and someone's smoking pot in the bathroom like mm-hmm. the parents knew like it is these things look like ubs hard drives You can't smell anything, and I'm hearing from psychiatrists, this is a huge problem, it's epidemic, and the amount of nicotine that's being absorbed through the Juul is so different than just smoking cigarettes. There's not even a protocol to how to get them off nicotine, like Mm -hmm. the way adults use the patch, whatever. Huge problem. So I think for parents, if if you want to talk to your kids about drugs, also talk about why they're interested in it. Because it's not just always peer pressure, and it's not always just a party. So that's my condensed feeling on this. But I did explore this in the book because I think it's very prevalent right now. Kids are more anxious than ever. I'm hearing that. That's a statistical fact. And this juuling is its insidious. This is a really stupid question. Juuling and vaping are not the same
0: thing, right? Those are two different well, things? Or-
1: and I, I'm still like, no, vaping is... The jewel is the device, but vaping is any mechanism for smoking tobacco or pot through, like, pens. Basically, it's anything that's not the traditional joint cigarette or bong. Okay. Yeah. But they're both bad. I feel like they are all movements bad. to, you know, stop this. But I didn't know if it, which part was the worst part. I'm understanding that juuling is the worst because the way a, a lot of people juul tobacco, not just pot, and the amount of tobacco that they're— And look, I'm not a doctor, but this no, is— No, I know, yeah, and I'm sorry, no, I no, shouldn't no, but, even— No, no, but— This is like, you the, the, know, I feel
0: like I'm a relatively educated person who like reads the newspaper and I'm still confused, so I'm hoping maybe somebody else is confused and this is helping them.
1: It is it is confusing, and the, 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 the biggest problem with juuling is the tobacco levels are very, very high, and okay. it's even more— you know, it's not like when we were kids and we'd smoke maybe a cigarette to experiment. You know, like these kids are getting addicted quickly and in a way that's very hard to get them off. Wow. Well, I'm glad you tackled it in a in a fictitious way, even just to raise the conversation.
0: Yeah. You also wrote a lot about divorce in this book. Yes. Um, Penny's dad re enters the picture mm-hmm. in sort of an opportunistic way not to give anything away. But at one point Emma reads a letter from a lawyer and says, "'She must have let out a scream or a cry "'because Kyle came running from the other room "'asking what was wrong. "'Shaking, she handed him the first page. "'Emma started sobbing.'" And you follow this with the scene in the lawyer's office where you write, "'Emma glanced at Mark, who was her ex-husband. "'His expression was wounded, "'as if she were the one doing this to him. "'How unbelievable that she had once loved this man. "'He had held her hand while she gave birth, "'and now he was trying to destroy her life.'" because that's what it would do if she lost penny. How had she gotten into this position? How had things gone so terribly off course? Yeah. Talk to me about this.
1: Well, you know, divorce it's like it's prevalent and oftentimes it's necessary. Like, you know, you, you go into marriage with the best of intentions and sometimes it just doesn't work out. You know, I think the till death do us part is a very, very high expectation. And it is astonishing to me to see how you can go from, I love this person enough to try to spend my life with them, to now I'm going to do the most hurtful things to them just because it didn't work out. And, you know, I went through a divorce, and fortunately, it did not get that acrimonious. But even in the best of divorces, it's like you're hurting the person you once loved, and it never it's it's never good like i i don't buy this whole oh we're like consciously uncoupling whatever someone's hurting mm-hmm. in that process the question is can you hold on to some shred of look we once cared about each other how far are you going to go The problem is that the stakes are so high when you're dealing with kids Mm -hmm. because you're both equally as invested. And I don't know what the answer is, but I think the saddest thing about divorce is that you go from, I love you to I hate you. And one of my favorite movies, although it's unrealistic and it's just a movie. I love that Nancy Myers movie it's complicated mm-hmm. when Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin had been married and then they come back and have an affair, which obviously is not realistic or no, I wouldn't recommend that. But what I loved about the movie is they at least had some recognition that, you know what? There was a time when we'd fun together and we'd have these kids. And let's just raise a glass to that, you know? And I wish that could happen more often because the bottom line is there's some kernel of good in every couple who came together to have children. That's true. Oh, I'm like loving all your answers. I'm like letting them all sink in. And so
0: on your website, not to keep jumping around, but on your website, you listed this whole history of your love of books, um, which was great. And I felt like so many of the Authors that you loved along the way, like I was a huge Judith So Those were my first books that were long, like like adult fiction, basically books yes. that my mom gave me, and I was like, "Your mom gave them to you?" Yes,
1: <laughs> yeah. That's a whole conversation. Wow, yeah. Like Princess Daisy. Oh those, my God. Yeah, I was. And I was like, them. "These are
0: like, th- I mean, those were so, that was like porn, basically." <laughs> uh, <laughs> I feel oh, like yeah. right. I mean, oh yeah. I was like, all right, this is how I'm going to learn about all this stuff. I Good was for like, your mom. I was like. 14 or something. She's my new hero. Oh, I I think she probably hadn't read that. I don't know. I don't know. But when you were talking about all the books and how they've sort of, you know, coursed through your life along different times and everything. You wrote that after your second daughter was born in 2004, as life became busier and more complicated, you said the main criteria for the books that you chose was escapism. Yes. Talk to me about that. You know, I'm hoping there are a lot of moms listening. So,
1: well, I'm trying I remember exactly the book that someone gave me. It was in 2004 and my neighbor who's a publicist gave me the first Emily Giffen book, Something Borrowed. And um, it was like, you know, I was up every night in the middle of the night nursing, and I thought, oh, it's gonna be a long time before I can like read or do anything. But the book was there, so when I couldn't fall back to sleep, I just started reading. And I was able to feel exactly the way I'd always felt with books. Like, I fell into it, I loved it, it wasn't work, it was like fun. And every night, instead of dreading being up at 2, 4, 6, I look forward to, like, at least getting a little reading in, too. So I write, I guess, what you call beach reads. You know, their beach books. are set in the summer. They're set in beach towns. But when I was growing up, my beach books, like my guilty pleasure books, were the Judith Crans. those epic sagas of women finding their way in the world and The early Judith Kranz books were in the 70s. So they were super, super explicit sexually, but they were also just trying to— it was all part of the liberation of that time. So those are the early books I fell in love with, which were escapist, fun, wish fulfillment. Then I went through my whole, like, super literary phase in college as an English major, and then early in New York working with, like, super literary authors— And then I found my way back to like my true love, which is just commercial, fun, escapist romps. And it did start with being a new mother and not having the energy for books that made me work too hard. And I also didn't want books that were depressing. And I felt the same way about movies. Like I lost my interest in, like, I don't need to cry. Like, I don't need to be depressed. Like, let's try to keep things positive. Like, I lost my taste for books that devastated me. Because I think you become more sensitive. Like, you become exquisitely tuned to life in all its dimensions when you become a mother. And when I came to books, from then on, I wanted books that fed positive. I feel like sometimes people get wrapped
0: up in feeling like they should read certain books, right? Like, maybe they are books that don't even really appeal to them, but everybody else says are amazing but I feel like if people just would read what really they what they really want to read, yes, just as long as they're reading it's it's they'll get something out of it. like don't wait to like get through a masterpiece when you have like two minutes to read at night you know I mean? no like, yeah just read or maybe if that's your thing if you love poetry, you love literary fiction, then like give yourself that gift every day but don't force yourself into a category
1: or feel guilty about anything you want to read that right? Absolutely. Like there was a book that came out like two years ago and everyone's like, you have to read it. It's a masterpiece. And oh my God, it's devastating. And I'm like, you know what? I don't want to be devastated. Mm-hmm. I'm not reading this book. Yeah. Like I'm sure it's a masterpiece, but it's not like, that's not, yeah, exactly. If you want to go back and read Edith Wharton, read Edith Wharton. Yeah. If you want to read, you know, if you want to go back and reread the Sweet Valley High books, cause you still have some in your collection and that's what makes you happy, do that. I mean, I feel like books are, like, the biggest gift, and we don't have to answer to anyone. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So one of, the,
0: one of the last lines of your book, not to give anything away again, you write, There had been plenty of challenging moments in her 14 years of motherhood, but it didn't get any harder than letting go. I literally like stopped and was like, I think I'm gonna cry reading this because, you know, parents at any age, you know it's coming, right? It's sort of like yes, death in a way, right? Like you know it's coming. It's coming. You can prepare for it, but can you prepare for it? Not really. I mean, it just it is what it is. It's like when someone's sick, like I don't know, the mental, our our mental. Abilities to cope with some things I feel like are limited. Going to, a kid going to college is obviously not as big a, a loss, but it's a loss nonetheless. It's like a loss of your stage of life. Yes. And one that I feel like with most motherhood-ish type stuff, there isn't necessarily like a proper like transition preparation, right? The transition from not being a mom to a mom. There's so much written out there, but... That's like a whole, you know, The I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's some key stages and that being one of them where, well, anyway, I'm sorry, I'm rambling. I had like no sleep last night. Talk to me about that, please. Jamie, take
1: it away. Well, first <laughs> of all, you did touch on something true, which is we don't have enough rites of passage in our culture to mark things like, like there's no, you know, we have ceremonies, we have birthdays, we have like bar and bat mitzvahs, but like we don't have a ceremony to mark the huge rite of passage, which is your child leaving the nest. In terms of preparing for that, I have strong thoughts on this as well. Oh, good. Excellent. (laughs) The best way to prepare for that is to, like, first of all, I love the name of your podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Make time to do what is right for you. Like, you can't do everything for your kids and not continue to develop who you are along the way, or you are going to be devastated when your child leaves, and you're not doing them a service. The best thing you can do for your child is to also make time to read, make time to have your hobbies, make time for your work. I remember when I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to breastfeed, and I went to my pediatrician, and I was like, mm, I don't know if I want to. And she said, look, happy mom makes for happy baby. Okay, That's the only thing you have to really keep in mind. And I think this goes for grown mothers. If your life is full your kids are going to benefit because you're happy and you're fine. And they don't feel like, oh, my gosh, I'm leaving my mom. I feel guilty. It's, it's not their job to continue to, like, validate mm-hmm. our role as mother, right? Like, right. they're leaving how their lives. We need to have our own foundation. And even though it feels selfish when they're little, taking the time to go to our book club or go to work or take that knitting class, like, that is not selfish because that is going to be your child's going to be happy when she's 18 that she knows mom is going to miss her, but she's also going to be excited to have that extra time to continue doing what she loves to do. So I think the best way to prepare for your kid leaving growing up is to make sure you are whole as a person. Because I think the worst thing for a child is to feel it's my job to make mom's life complete. And she does everything for me, and now I'm leaving. And it's like, you know, that's not, it's not good for them. I think divorced
0: parents get this a little earlier. Right? I feel like when I don't have custody of the kids, I've had I've learned over the last whatever, 4 years how to make my own life full again. Yes. Because at the beginning, and not that it's not sad. I always miss them like crazy, but at the beginning it was just so painful and devastating. I didn't know what to do with myself. Yes. Um in part this podcast and like reading all these books has really helped. And now my kids are like, well, what do you, how many podcasts are you doing when when we're not with you? And like, which meetings do you have? And they're into it, you know? Yes, so they know yes. I'm not going to like sit around crying. Even Even if some parts of the weekend I do cry or I do feel really sad, like it's not their responsibility. Like I can't put this on them. That's right. So anyway, all to say, because, you know, Other divorced moms out there know that you get these glimpses of like, okay, like, you know, the rain that's, you know, falling on the car in a storm is going to, you know, when you go under like an underpass and it it stops, you get those moments of breathing room to as like a preview. Whereas moms who don't have that necessarily are taken off
1: guard, I think a little more at the end. I uh, absolutely not the end. Obviously parenting doesn't end, but Right. No, absolutely um, one of the the upsides to being divorced is you do get practice in having time to yourself and how yes. to feel that constructively and how not and how not to put there's all ways of saying, Oh, I, I missed you this weekend, but you don't want to make the child feel bad. Like, oh mom misses me and I miss her and this is a mess. Like again, yeah, Like they hard. need to feel you're okay. Yes.
0: And then they'll feel okay. Exactly. Kids are so sensitive. I mean, I feel like sometimes they can read my mind. Even when I act like things are fine, but I'm stressed inside. Do you feel like this too? Yes. They like can. They have this, like, they can, like, strip everything away and see inside, like, no matter how much I hide it. So you actually can't... Fake it necessarily. You have to be okay. <laughs> yes. And, but then. Look, Not totally. I mean, obviously, every, you know.
1: You don't, I mean, I think you don't have to always pretend you're okay for your kids, but I think the important thing is the child never feels it's their job to fix yes. or to make you yes. happy. That's a better way to say it.
0: Um, and if you're not okay to be like, I'm having a really rough day, like because kids exactly. need to know that you have rough days too. Absolutely, or like I'm really worried. I have a lot of work. I have this, or you know, I'm worried about this. You know, whatever. That's it's
1: okay. More, yes. it's better
0: than when you pretend and then everything just feels off. I feel
1: like right. Exactly. It's like, if you're sick, you need to, I think, I believe in being honest and saying, look, I'm sick, but I'm taking care of myself and it's going to be, you know, hopefully going to be fine. But again, it's just, I think the way you convey your struggles in that they're being dealt with and it is never the child's job to help you deal. I mean, not, I mean, hopefully they grow up as empathetic people. But, you know, my mother... You know, she was just when I grew up and left. It was almost like a "How dare you!" Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. like a "How after everything I've done for you, how dare you go have your own life?" And I think that's the flip side to that. Like, you know, it's like, well, I didn't. That's not really, you know, right. It's not now my job to go and raise you, right? Y- you know, so yeah. I just think be a human being, be honest, but make the child understand it's not their job to to fix your problems. Yeah. This has become like a, a parent coaching session that we're having here. This cool. is like,
0: I love it. No, I love talking to moms with kids a little bit older than my kids. I feel like I always, that's how I get through life, right? It's so well, it's so
1: complicated. And, you know, and I'll tell you, because, because my youngest daughter is so complicated, I've had so much, I've been fortunate to have great therapists, and I've learned so much, like, just by talking to therapists and learning things like you don't have to fix everything. And, you know, I mean— <laughs> It's, there's no handbook and it's never easy, but being harder on yourself is never the solution. Like, I think that's what moms need to know. Like being harder on yourself or making yourself miserable is probably not the answer. Good call.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so back to writing for a second. What's coming next? You've been like cranking out these books yes. one a year. W- where are you going next summer? <laughs>
1: okay. So, yeah. So, I've been going to a different beach town every summer. And I did Provincetown, the Jersey Shore, Sag Harbor. And next year, I'm going back to Provincetown because I fell in love with this place so madly. And I was researching a book and ended up making lifelong friends. So I'm going back to Provincetown, which for anyone who doesn't know, is at the very tip of Cape Cod. And next summer will be the 400th anniversary of the town. So there's that. And I also do love the Hamptons. And I'm actually going to go to the North Fork for my 2021 book to explore wine country a little bit. Oh, I love that. So those are my next two locations on the, on the docket. So cool. Yeah. How great to structure your
0: writing life around fun vacation places. Yeah, I have to say it's it's tough work but someone's got to do it. <laughs> Well, I'm really glad you've done it, and thank you for all the, the true, like, entertainment and education that you provide to readers, and it's been great getting to know you and reading your book.
1: You too, Zuby, and thank you so much for giving moms and writers and readers a place to get together. We need, we need it in so many ways, as we discussed <laughs> today, so thank you, seriously. Of
0: course, no, my pleasure. Jimmy. today's episode was sponsored by SerialBox, box s-e-r-i-a-l-b-o-x.com SerialBox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments thanks to ryan and steve at texture sound for the audio editing and mixing thanks for listening to moms don't have time to read books <laughs>